Well, hey, friends, Eric Nevins here. We are going to get the show started in just a moment. But before we do, I forgot to mention something during the interview with my guest today. My guest is Amos Smith. He's an author. He is a pastor, and he's a little bit of a mystic. Um, and so he, we talk about some really interesting ideas and things that I think will, at the very least, challenge you to grow or think a little bit differently about your spiritual journey, uh, which I think is Amos's goal. But um, but also, if you're interested in his book, he wanted me to mention that you can actually get a free copy of it just by emailing, um, sending an email. So um, the only thing he asks in exchange is a review on Amazon. I don't know if you know this, but when you do reviews, especially when you're putting out a uh, book, um, you know, when it's coming out, your pre-orders and your book reviews is how Amazon knows that, hey, this book actually has some traction and uh, some people want it, so maybe we'll show it to more people. So if you would, if you want a copy of the book, just email. I'm going to give you the email right now. It's rachelm at paracletepress.com. I'm going to spell that out. R-A-C-H-E-L-M, as in Mary, at paracletepress. And that is spelled P-A-R-A-C-L-E-T-E. P-R-E-S-S.com, okay? Rachel M. at paracletepress.com. Just let her know that you heard Amos on Halfway There and that you'd love a copy of the book to review for Amazon, okay? They will send it to you probably in a PDF. That's how I got it. And uh, it's really, really an interesting uh, book to, to look at. And Amos is going to tell us all about that right now, okay? So again, Rachel M. at paracletepress.com. Paraclete, I don't know why I can't talk this morning, paracletepress.com if you want to get a book for review. We talked about that after our conversation, so I wanted to make sure we got it in here. Here is my conversation with Amos. Well, welcome, friends, to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm excited about this conversation today. I'm going to bring to you a conversation um, that may challenge a little bit of what you know about spiritual disciplines and um, and just in prayer. So it might expand what you think about prayer a little bit. I hope so. Um, so I'm happy to welcome to the show progressive pastor and contemplative author Amos Smith. Amos, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. I I enjoy your show. Appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm really glad to make the connection. We've been uh, connected a little bit through uh, Rich Lewis, who has been on the show in the past, and uh, I'm glad to just connect and hear a little bit about your contemplative journey because I know that it's it's definitely interesting. So tell us a little bit about um, your grow, your, who you are and where you are now, and then uh, we'll ask okay. a few questions and go back. So, Okay. Well, my, um, my story in a nutshell is that um, I was a, uh, a competitive athlete in high school, and I was captain of my wrestling team, and I, I had a lot of athletic discipline. And then um, in 1999, I did a centering prayer retreat at Snowmass, uh, Colorado, at Benedict's Monastery, and I met Thomas Keating for the first time. 
and I was uh, eating with with uh, Thomas Keating uh, at dinner. And I remember he said to me, he said, if you practice 40 minutes a day um, centering prayer, and if you do one extended retreat every year of, of at least six to 10 days, he said, you will make progress. And so I really um, applied that, that athletic discipline that I had um, to what Keating said. And I, and I just carried out exactly what he said. I just practiced 40 minutes a day, rarely missing, and I didn't extend a retreat every year. And as as a result, it did uh, transform me, but but not in a not in a big, um, I don't know, showy way. Um, basically, uh, one of the main things it did is it helped me to survive in Christian ministry because in Christian ministry, in a couple of churches that I served, I, I experienced huge curveballs, um, and and I was able to withstand you know all that. Um, because anybody who knows about Christian ministry in the 21st century, it's tumultuous, you know, sure. there's just a lot of, pu- there's a lot of push and pull. There's a lot of polarization. There's a lot of dysfunctional families. So, um, so anyway, um, the centering prayer really became my root. It became my, the, the grace that, that held me and helped me to, uh, you know, continue to be a minister to this day. So. Yeah. So you're a pastor now. Um, yes, I'm, I'm currently taking a, a short break, um, but yes, um, I, I've been a minister for 18 years. Okay, great. So, that yeah, that's a great little bit of background about Centering Prayer. Why don't we just go ahead and define Centering Prayer? I want to I hear more about why that was attractive to you by going through your story in just a minute, but tell us about what Centering Prayer is and why discipline matters in it. Well, um, I guess to, to begin with discipline, because I do think that's the root, I think that's the core, um, is my frustration with centering prayer, even before we start getting into the, the practice itself and, and what it's like. It, my frustration is a lot of people who, who go into centering prayer, they take this lazy affair attitude towards it, and they just kind of dabble, and they, they pick it up, and then they drop it, and then they pick it up again. But, you know, if you applied that kind of lazy affair attitude to playing the violin, you would never get good. You know, and so, you know, the same kind of discipline that's required to to learn uh, a musical instrument well or to be competitive at a at a sport, that same discipline is required um, in in um, meditation. And, you know, the the authors of the Philokalia, uh, an ancient book in Christian uh, mysticism, they knew that and they were disciplined. And as a result of their discipline, they, they really did, you know, transform their consciousness and transform their, their bodies, their minds. But, um, but without that discipline, it, you know, progress is going to be partial and people are just going to stay in their dualistic minds. And um, they're, they're just not going to really enter into a, a, another category of, of being, which, which, is, which is really, um, I, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of uh, a, a a charlatan's approach. I, I mean, a lot of people who write about, uh, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, deeper states of consciousness, they, they really haven't gotten there. They, and they don't have the discipline, you know, to, to really get there. And, um, I know that's harsh to say, but, um, but this thing is real, you know, and it has an ancient uh, tradition and it's, it's a, it's a important and significant discipline, like, like playing the violin, you know, or, mm-hmm. or doing a sport well. And so, and so it shouldn't just be, you know, come at willy nilly um, and, and then, you know, write a bunch of blah, 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 you know, uh, there's a lot of blather out there, I think, that isn't really rooted, not really disciplined. It just seems like kind of new age, you know, verbiage and 
uh, it's hard to make, you know, this or that of it. So, so that's, you know, that's where I'm coming from is, is bringing more like respect and, um, reverence, you know, to an ancient and powerful tradition. Yeah. Okay. So what is centering prayer? So, um, so centering prayer, um, is the, the cloud of unknowing, which is a, um, a book of Christian mysticism written in England, um, by an unknown author. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember when it was written, written, I think it was 14th century. Um, anyway, it's taking the practices of that book and making them accessible and, and just commonly available to people. So it's, um, it's about picking a, uh, a prayer word. You don't, you don't get too fixated on the word, but, but there's a word that um, reminds you to, uh, to come back from whatever distractions you're currently dabbling in and to come back to the present moment. And then, um, and then when you do that over and over again, uh, you begin to experience more and more uh, stillness in your mind. And I think one of the best ways to talk about it is, um, you know, in between your thoughts, there's a space. And what Centering Prayers helps you to do is to increase that space in between thoughts. But it does much, much more than that. I mean, especially if you go on extended retreats, what happens is you go into such a deep place of relaxation, it's much deeper than sleep can take you. And because of the profound relaxation, any kind of latent tension that's in your body will start to um, remove itself. So you, so you have intense um, uh, tensions in your back, uh, shoulders, jaw, wherever you hold your tension, and it'll, it'll start to dissipate. I mean, it'll be excruciating at first. It's what Thomas Keating uh, refers to as unloading um, in the Centering Prayer tradition, but there's this unloading of tension, and that's what's been so liberating to me, is I used to hold lots of tension in my back, like amazing amounts of tension. And over the years of Centering Prayer, um, that, that tension has dissipated. I mean, it's, it's, I'm just so much more relaxed and at ease and um, sleep better at night, um, you know, concentrate and focus much better. So, um, so that's, uh, you know, that, that's basically what Centering Prayer is, is um, extending the period of time when you have no thoughts. And probably the best analogy I know of for this is training a puppy to sit in the middle of a circle. Now, if you ever try this, um, it's it's completely frustrating because every time you bring the puppy to the center of the circle, it's going to wander. And it's going to wander immediately. And then you gently bring it back, and then it wanders again. And then you bring it back, and then it wanders again. And it's monotonous. But what will happen is if you keep up with it, um, and that's the main thing, is if you have the discipline to keep up with it, what will happen over time is that the puppy will actually sit in the middle of that circle for five seconds, which is a triumph, you know. And then in time, if you if you keep doing it, the puppy will sit in the middle of the circle for a minute, you know, or, or even two or three or four minutes. And and that's when you start to experience what I'm talking about, which is a whole nother level of consciousness, a whole nother level of, of relaxation, peace, joy. Um, and it takes time, though, and it's like training that puppy. Yeah, well, it's a way of really calming your thoughts before the Lord and giving him space to speak to you. Is that, is that yeah. too simple a yeah. definition? Um. Yeah, but but the calming of the thoughts um, that um, implies that the thoughts are still there, mm, um, sure. and in ultimate, so see ultimately, and this is where the leap of faith comes in, 
is ultimately you get to a place where there's no thoughts, there's no images, there's no sensations, um, there's, you know, there's nothing that is binary. There's nothing that you can name. There's nothing you can think about. And, and some people think, well, that's scary. Um, and it is scary. It, it, there's, there's a certain level of terror in that because people think, well, what the hell's left then? Um, is there just some big void? But that's, that's the adventure of the mystic is to um, explore that profound question of, uh, you know, what's left when, when my mind is, is just completely still, completely placid, no thoughts, no nothing. And, and what, what the mystic will find is there is, um, there is a presence that no words can touch. Um, that, you know, sh- this just sends shivers of joy, you know, up our spinal columns and gives us a deep and profound sense of belonging and homecoming and being uh, at home in the world. And, and this to me is, is, you know, like the ultimate prodigal son, you know, mm. kind of experience. It, it being embraced by the Abba at the deepest level. The Abba is no longer talking, you know, daddy is no longer talking to you. He just he just got you in in his embrace, and um, and all you got it. You don't have to think anymore. You don't have to say anything to him. He um, he just has you in that bear hug, and you know you're home. So that I think is ultimately you know where the thing takes you. Yeah. Okay. So you how did you originally come to Christ? And tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I, um, in, in high school, I uh, went to an evangelical church. I was part of an evangelical youth group. Um, I went and saw some amazing, you know, Christian rock concerts, and um, I was into the Christian rock scene. Uh, even to this day, uh, you know, I enjoy uh, Christian rock. I, I just went to see uh, David Crowder with my wife. Oh, nice. And, um, and I've, you know, my wife and I have seen, you know, Third Day and Jars of Clay and newsboys and um a, a lot of the the people on the you know contemporary um christian rock scene and um and we we enjoy that but uh but you know i um i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do with my life um and i i thought maybe i wanted to teach comparative religion um or maybe i wanted to become a minister but i wasn't sure which so i decided to make up my mind i would go to northern india and I would study uh, Hindi and Sanskrit at the Landau Language School in Uttar Pradesh. So I went out there to northern India, and um, and I was studying Hindi and Sanskrit. And I um, and I decided after um, after about three or four months of that that it wasn't for me. Uh, and so, why did you decide um, that? Um, because I don't think languages are really my thing, and Hindi and Sanskrit are. Um, I mean, they're what they call class five languages. So after, you know, one year of Hindi or Sanskrit, you're at the same place you'd be after, you know, three months of the Romance language, like Spanish or oh, wow. um, or French, you know. So, um, well, not French. Um, French is, is higher up there. But but anyway, um, it's just a, it's a very difficult language. And so um, I just realized it wasn't for me. Then I had this dream that um, that I was I was in this. A cathedral, and it was like a, it was one of those really significant dreams, you know. That for me, it just kind of changed the direction of my life. And and um, I was in this cathedral, and light started pouring in, and I just saw all this light coming into the cathedral. And then I then I heard, not audibly, but I heard in the dream, it, it said, "Teach the love of Jesus." 
And, um, and I woke up, you know, wide eyed because it was for whatever reason, it was like a gripping, you know, dream, but I realized, okay, this, this is the answer to my question. I I need to become a minister. So when I got back to the U S um, I immediately enrolled in seminary and, um, and I went into Christian ministry and I've been a minister in churches from, you know, Montana to Washington to Arizona. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so then where along, so you're, Okay, you went to um, study Sanskrit. I mean, that seems like you already have had this kind of... I mean, that seems mystical by itself, right? Did you already have this kind of mystical sensibility about you? Well, you know, the, the, my real first introduction to mysticism, and that, that's, that's a good point, but, but I used to be a mountain climber. And, um, you know, after, mm. um, after college, um, and well, during high school and after high school too, I climbed a lot of mountains, um, throughout the world. And, um, and I was just, you know, I was really into, into mountain climbing and, and there was something about, you know, once you got up high and, and the air was thin, um, I would get to these places where I just, I knew without a doubt that I was part of something much, much bigger than myself. And it was, um, it was visceral, you know, it was something that, that I just, I experienced it in my bones. And so I, that, that was really my first introduction to, you know, what later, um, I developed through center in prayer, but, but I had those experiences of, of being connected and that, um, I'm part of something beautiful, that there is a creator that, um, you know, that all of this stuff is intricately woven together with, um, you know, with amazing symmetry and poise. And, um, and I'm part of this and I'm connected to it all. Um, and so that was really my, my first introduction, you know, to, to mysticism. Um, and maybe I was prepared for it somewhat, you know, by, by the evangelical church, but, um, but yeah, the mountain climbing is what really did it for me. Yeah. I think in your book, be still and listen, I think you call that nature mysticism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, you know, and there's a long legacy of that in the in the Christian tradition. Saint Patrick was a what I, I would call a nature mystic, and um, and you know, Deschardins was uh, was definitely you know nature mystic, and so was um, Saint Francis. You know, they they just had this deep reverence for the natural world mm-hmm. and for its divine origins, um, and so you know, and they lifted that out. So yeah, you know, what I love about that is. Um, and you talk a little bit about Genesis one. I think the the whole thing of observing the world, and you know, God calls He creates the world and He calls it good, and He gives it to us. And uh, you know, we have to deal with sin and all the consequences of that. But I think we can still see that. You know, I mean, good good theology says that, right? You can God is revealed in what He has made, and it tells us a little bit about who He is. And I think that feeling of you know, most of us have had that. Um, sounds like you've had a lot on top of a mountain or a high range or something where you're looking and and you get the sense I'm actually really small here, you know. And uh, yeah. there's something much bigger going on, and it's not just this pile of rocks. Oh yeah, def- definitely. And, and you know, my my nine year old son has that. I mean, he right. just you know he he goes on a we we walk the dog every day. You know, the whole family we go out and walk the dog. And, um, and sometimes he just stops and he look, looks up at the blue sky and I know what he's thinking in his head. He's thinking, this thing is crazy. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and, and see adults lose that. And, and psychologists tell us that, 
that we all had that as, as children, but then over the years we suppress it. And, you know, our dualistic, you know, reasoning minds kind of take over everything. But, but you know, to, and I think there's a reason why in Scripture it says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to, to a child. And, and it doesn't mean that we need to be childish by any means, but it means that mm. we need to let go of all those filters and, and all those ways that we suppress that and reintegrate that awe and, and that wonder that my son has um, into our adult lives, you know, and, and so to re-enchant our lives so that they're not just, you know, uh, plodding through the workday or whatever, you know, that they have a, a they have a glimmer of, of the absolute and the infinite. Even in the, in the most mundane things, we get this feeling that, you know, I'm, I'm part of something that is mysterious and millions of years old and, um, and that is full of mystery, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so nature kind of led you to become a mystic. How did you begin to discover some of the um, like Desert Fathers and because your your previous book called Healing the Divide, which is all about um, like kind of connecting us back to some of those some of those people and some of those traditions. How did you discover them? Well, well, see, I, I guess what happened is is as I started to see more and more holistically, as I started to um, be more and more steeped and marinated in this silence and stillness. Um, I began to just want to to see things in a fresh new way. So, healing the divide is about seeing Jesus with a a, a mystical mind. Is is what I hope it does. Yeah. Um, I mean, mis- mystical. Sometimes I I um, you know hesitate to use the word because it can sound pretentious, and I know a lot of evangelicals just don't like the word. But but I use it anyway, and I and I just try to define it, you know, for for myself. And so, so yeah, it started in the natural world, and um, and then I wanted to apply that that presence of mind, that that uh, steep you know stillness and silence to Jesus, and that was uh, my first book. Second book is about applying that that same mind to Scripture. Um, and then my my third book, which I've already uh, written, and Richard Rohr uh, gave the uh, the forward for it, and I'm you know it's it's getting uh, tossed around in the very publishers right now, awesome. but it's about the it's about the philokalia, and um, and so it's you know and that to me is like if you want to look at um, Christian mysticism's uh, deepest roots, for me they're in the philokalia. Um, I mean, the Philokalia has some some problems, but overall, it, it shows us a legacy of Christian mysticism. It's not just, you know, oh, there's this obscure mystic over there that lived in that time, and then there's one that appeared over here and, you know, lived in that time. This is a tradition, you know, that that was went from the 3rd century, you know, through to the, the 16th century, and, um, and it, there was continuity throughout. And so that that really um, draws me now, you know. So that's going to be my my third book is um, on the Philokalia. Oh, so interesting. Um, okay, so tell us, because I don't. My guess is that most of my listeners have never heard of the Philokalia. And yeah. um, and here's the thing: I haven't. I I've just come across it in your writings, but that's pretty much it. And I have a background in spiritual formation, so I've done some of these readings. Um, yeah. So, but I hadn't really heard of that one. So, tell us a little bit about what's in there and why that's kind of important. Well, and, and that's really the reason for the book is that I, I go to these uh, workshops and you know retreats um, in Christian contemplative tradition, and I never hear about the Philokalia. 
And it, to me, that's similar to going to a classical music convention and never hearing the name Mozart. Yeah. I mean, it just makes no sense. You know, here you have this incredible um, piece of work. And for me, it just goes back bet- uh, to the schism between East and West. That, um, mm. you know, Western scholasticism and, you know, contemplative tradition has gone its own direction. And then the Eastern Church has gone its direction, and never the two shall meet. And that's one of the real tragedies of, of Christian tradition as a whole. Yeah, I agree. But, but I think it's time in the 21st century, you know, to take um, this great classic of, of the Eastern Church and to, you know, make it accessible to the West. Yeah, that's a good point, that that's why we haven't heard of it, because uh, we just don't, we don't have a perspective that's outside of the West. And uh, right. so interesting, you know, I've, I've had some interesting conversations with friends lately about um, how they've been attracted to some of the Eastern uh, Orthodox churches kind of view of things and that it, you know, they don't have some of the separations and some of the problems that we have with trying to make everything fit into a theology um, right. a little, little bit more of a, appreciation for mystery and wonder and it's okay for every, everything doesn't have to fit, have to fit in the boxes, you know? Definitely. Definitely. And it has, you know, and it has these shining lights. Like, I mean, well, well we, we own this saint too, but, um, but of all the, if, well, of all the authors of the Philippalia, if you just, I just tell people, you know, if you just want to read one author, just read Maximus the Confessor, you know, to me, I mean, Maximus, Maximus literally blew my mind. I mean, when I, when I read him, he gave words to stuff that I had been experiencing that nobody else gave words to. And so, you know, and, and that's to, that to me is the, the problem with the Philoclea. It's too big. It's just, you know, it's a compendium of four books um, translated in English. Nobody has time for that stuff. So what I did in my book, um, which I hope comes out, you know, next year or so, is that um, I, I just take uh, you know two or maybe three authors from each of those four books, and um, and then I expand on those. But I don't try to to bite off the whole thing and, and chew it because it's just way too much. You know, I just try to take a few of the most significant authors in my mind, and um, you know el- elaborate on them. So uh, so that's another reason why the Philokalia I think is just um, unknown in the West. Is it, it just seems too unwieldy to people or just too huge or they just can't, they can't even, they just don't know even where to start. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, I think another, um, I don't know how to say this. Another issue that people sometimes have is it just seems strange, right? It's not, it can be a little bit, um, you know, it's, it's obviously foreign, but it's also, you know, we're so trained to care about truth and truth is important. Of course, I'm not, wouldn't, ever say it's not but we wonder about well can it be true if you know it hasn't been filtered through our theology um i don't know how do you deal with that well um and, and here it goes back to you know i have this background of like studying hindi and sanskrit and and mm-hmm. um i studied comparative i studied comparative religion in, in college um and so, you know, for me, one of the things about the Philokalia that resonates is as I studied the different mystical traditions of the world religions, I realized that there's consistent themes throughout. And and two just basic consistent, consistent themes is a reverence for stillness and silence 
and that comes uh, forth in different forms of meditation. Of course, you know, for us, it's Psalm 46, verse 10, you know, be still and know that I'm God. Yeah. Now, in the Philokalia, in the Philokalia, they, um, they have their own translation of Psalm 46, verse 10, and it says, practice stillness and know God. And that, that particular verse is so significant to the authors of the Philokalia and to the Eastern Church that it's written above monastery doors. So as you enter into the monastery, you, you see it. It says, you know, practice stillness and know God. So, so these different uh, mystical traditions, they, they revere stillness and silence. And then they also have repetitive prayers to ground the mind. And, and the, uh, the Eastern Church, and the Philokali in particular, um, emphasize the Jesus prayer. And it's the most ancient um, repetitive prayer in Christian tradition that we have. It's even more um, ancient than the rosary. And, you know, and so these two things come up um, as, as primary throughout the Philokalia. And, and it's one of the things that, that, um, that, that just convinces us that this is, you know, this is definitely within um, the subject of, of mysticism. And it is Christian mysticism, you know, and for me, it's Christian mysticism at its best. Um, and the theology throughout there is, is amazing theology, too. It's all grounded in Scripture. And, and the authors of the Philokalia, they quote Scripture throughout, and especially the stuff that emphasizes humility. You know, humility is, is everything in, in the Philokalia. It's the starting point of, of wisdom. It's the starting point of discernment. It's also the starting point, uh, paradoxically, of greatness, is that first you have to realize that you're nothing before God. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think it's that's so. The here's a thought that I had, and I hesitate to share it a little bit, but I, sometimes I think our theology produces the opposite of humility. It produces pride, um, which I don't know. I don't know if I want to go too too far into that, but it just it, it's intriguing to me. No, I totally I totally agree with you, and that's why so many mystics, you know, especially uh, after the Protestant churches became fragmented and refragmented over and over and over again because everybody was just so invested in being right. And my interpret interpretation of Scripture is right. Your interpretation is wrong. And so there's another split, and then there's another split, and over and over again until we have, you know, over 5,000 denominations that we have now. And um, and so, you know, mystics uh, through the ages have cried out, why has the Christian Church um, substituted the um, the bridal chamber you know, for the courtroom. You know, why why is there this emphasis on the courtroom? It should the emphasis should be the song of songs. It should be the marriage of the the soul with Christ. You know, it should be about this mystical union with Christ. It should not be about all this legalistic, you know, I'm right and you're wrong stuff. You know, it's just gotten us nowhere. Yeah. So um you know, so that's uh, that to me is one of the tragedies of Protestant uh, tradition, you know, the, all the fragmentation. Yeah, I agree. I've, and so that's what's interesting about your your book, Be Still and Listen, about Scripture, is I've, I've come to this place where I've decided, I mean, I'm tra- my, my undergrad is in biblical studies, and then I have an MDiv too, so I've done a lot of taking a part of texts and whatever, and, you know, studying, and that, that all has its place, I guess, but eventually I realized this is not, it doesn't actually produce knowledge of God. Like I can, I can understand the text, but I don't necessarily know who God is. It might lead to worship sometimes, but it's not always the same kind of experience. And I think what you're suggesting that we have, uh, 
or try or strive for more is experience God through scripture and through silence and stillness. Yes, yes. And um and you know there are there are certain root scriptures that um that we return to again and again. And one of them is is Matthew six six. You know, it, it says go into your room and close the door and pray to your God who is in secret. And then God who knows what you're doing in secret will reward you. Now, now the interesting thing about this particular um, passage, and it's something that's been quoted in the Philokalia and quoted by many, um, Thomas Keating refers to it often as the basis of centering prayer. But one of the interesting things about it is that in those times in Palestine, um, people had a, um, a one- or two-room house, and they usually had very large families. So the house was always bustling you know, with people running through. So obviously, go into your room and close the door is not um, an actual uh, you know, thing that's based on a room in the house. It's, it's metaphorical. And what you're doing is you're closing the door to the senses. You're, that's how it's been interpreted, you know, mm. by by many you know mystics uh, throughout. But you're closing the door to um, to sensations, to um, images, to smells, to tastes, um, you know, to sounds. And um, and as a result of that, uh, you know, you you enter into a different world that is not based on the senses. Um, it's it's based on what the Philokalia and other authors like Callistos Ware. Um, who's an East Orthodox author, referred to as the spiritual faculties, that the spiritual faculties are not based on the senses. They're, they're based on, you know, this deeper place that, um, that we can go that's beyond the senses. So the, the whole, you know, the whole point of something like Centering Prayer is to close that door and to, to find out that there's another world beyond the senses. Yeah, so interesting. I, you know, I, I'm not even sure what else to ask about that because I— I want to just try to practice it for a while and see what happens. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I wanted to ask you, have you ever had a dark night of the soul or a time when God felt far away? Oh, I, I've had several. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but sure. I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of suffering in my life. Just a lot of really um, uh, harsh circumstances that have presented themselves and that have just pummeled me. And, um, and I just thought to myself, you know, God, you, you didn't have my back. You know, you didn't prevent this from happening. You know, why, why should I even care about you? You know, and, and look at how you treat your saints. You know, you don't have their back either. They, they just get, you know, martyred and hung upside down and kicked in the head. And so, so what the hell, you know, what kind of friend are you anyway? You know, I mean, Abraham talks about um, God being his friend in, in Genesis, but what kind of you know what kind of friend you know treats you that way you know? But then I read these other scriptures that say you know God only admonishes you know those whom He loves, and so um, you know I still honestly I have a lot of questions. I still wrestle with a lot of things, and and I, I guess I I prefer that to half baked answers. I know there's a lot of people who just say, okay, well, I, I came to this confident conclusion. I don't know. You know, maybe I've just been doing meditation too long, but I'm okay with leaving some questions unanswered and just, you know, leaving, leaving some things open, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, interesting. So 
you know, how how did those experiences kind of did they lead you to more meditation or did they lead you like how did they shape how you understood God? You, you know, for me, um, what meditation became, what centering prayer became, was I was out at sea, and it was a like the perfect storm, and you know the waves are coming over the the, the boat. I don't even know if, if me or my crew is going to survive. And um, and what centering prayer became for me is is an anchor. You know, it's like it's like. Um, you know, everything else is, is topsy-turvy. I can't make sense of a damn thing. But but one thing I do have is this anchor. And it is stable, and it is resilient, and it is solid, and it is ancient. And I can rely on that. And so, you know, that's become really uh, what I teach and why I, I keep going forward, you know, no matter what obstacles come. It's because I really believe in centering prayer. You know, it's... it's um, it's not something I just do for fun, you know, or, or as a hobby or whatever. It's, um, you know, it's the reason that I'm, I'm here at all. And, you know, that I have a, a family that's doing well and, um, you know, I'm still in ministry. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, well, that's awesome. I think that's, that is helpful. And I think, um, for many, especially of us of the evangelical, uh, tradition, we just don't have many of those anchors. Um, there's a there's a point. I th- my understanding is that uh, the dark night helps us to kind of move and shed some of those things that that we build up to to make ourselves feel safe that uh, may or may not necessarily reflect God in His heart for us, um, so that we can move into things like this and we can we can know God and and know ourselves a lot a lot better. Well, and, and I, you know, I have to be honest. I mean, there have been times in Christian rock concerts when um, there there's something about, um, you, you know, and it doesn't happen every time, but there's some times when I've just felt like just I'm just part of this big, you know, um, amazing uh, group of, of, of people, this flow. We're all experiencing the music at the same time. Um, I feel energized, you know, and and I, I feel just a, a you know unequivocal praise for God. I mean that's great. You know that's that's a that's a powerful form of prayer. Um, but I, I think hmm. eventually, you know. But I, I think eventually, uh, like I, I think it was Brian McLaren, who I, I know a lot of people have challenges with McLaren, but I I think he's kind of this this funny, uh, you know, uh, he just kind of dabbles in everything. But but. Um, but one of the things McLaren said that I thought was was interesting is he said the evangelical church, the evangelical church, and the, and then the Pentecostal church were his introduction to contemplative prayer, and then um, the the Catholic contemplative tradition were you know were his you know his uh, I guess he, he used the word um, the college course or something like the, the Pentecostal church was his, was his high school. And then the the Catholic contemplative tradition became his college course, um, and I do think you know Thomas Keating and and um, contemplative outreach and the Sending Prayer movement, um, and they have a huge newsletter of like over three hundred thousand people, um, which for contemplatives is is pretty big, um, and they uh, yeah I think they just reach a lot of people, and there's more and more uh, evangelicals and Protestants and um, and all kinds of different people. Who are finding, um, you know, who are getting connected there. So, yeah, which is a good thing. 
Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think people are starting to be more, more open to it. All right. Well, so anything else you want to leave us with before we wrap up here, Amos? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's one story and it's, um, it's, it's from a different tradition, but I think it, I, I think it gives us a sense of what is possible through a, a discipline like centering prayer. I was in, um, I was in Berkeley, California and, um, and I was, uh, I used to see different, you know, people that would come through, uh, Berkeley. And one of the people who came through was a Vietnamese monk who was a close friend of Thomas Merton. Um, his name is, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, anyway, um, I was at this, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh convention and I was having some, um, you know, a snack, um, during the convention. And I was, I was talking to this guy and I, um, as I talked to him, I realized he was a massage therapist. And he told me this story, which kind of blew my mind. He said um, he was in Plum Village in France, and he was at, you know, the Thich Nhat Hanh's main retreat center there. Um, you know, he's a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monk. And uh, he went, to, went up to Thich Nhat Hanh and said, you know, I'd, I'd like, I'm a massage therapist. I'd like to give you a massage. Now, his understanding later was that he had been asked other times, you know, to, if uh, somebody would allow him to, you, you know, or her to give him the massage. And he always refused, um, as part of his monastic code. But for whatever reason, this one time he, uh, he said, you know what, this one time I'll let you. And so, um, so this guy gave, um, taking on a massage and he, he said it just completely blew his mind and his paradigm of what was possible because he had been doing massage for 20 years and in every single person he had ever massaged, they always had tension somewhere in their body, you know, either in their shoulders or in their back or in their neck. There was always tension in their body somewhere. Thich Nhat Hanh was loose as a goose. He had no tension <laughs> anywhere in his entire body. And this guy said he didn't even realize that was even possible. And, and see, that's the thing. I think a lot of people don't even realize, you know, how meditation can transform everything. It, your body, your mind, your nervous system it can heal your nervous system, you know? And I think that's what people need to know that the meditation is much deeper. It's much more profound. It's much more more holistic than, than we give credit. And, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Christian monks in, in Christian tradition, especially in the Philokalia, who I know were at the same place as Thich Nhat Hanh. And, um, and so that's, what's possible. I love that. That is a great, note to go out on so friends uh if meditation in this way and and centering prayer is new to you that's okay if it's intriguing to you definitely go check out amos and his work i've got links to all of those things at halfwaytherepodcast.com you'll find this episode and uh you know we've talked about both of his books and uh, even the one coming out so um and i've linked up all of those right there in the show notes to this page. Amos, thanks so much for being here. I'm really glad to, again, make the connection, but also just to hear from from your heart a little bit about uh, centering prayer and and uh, meditation. I'm challenged just to, I need to do more of it. I want to get into it because I want to know God and I want to have less tension. Well, Eric, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I know that some of the things I, I said have probably challenged some of your listeners, but I, I always think that if there's one thing Jesus did, you know, throughout the Gospels, is he always stretched the comfort zone. Yes. And um, and so, you know, I think that's what we're all called to do is, is be stretched in, in different ways. And um, 
and yeah, I really appreciate your time and uh, letting me be on the show. Yeah, I I like that a lot, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do here is just stretch our understanding of the spiritual journey. It's actually a lot bigger than most of our churches are showing us, so that's why we're here. Okay, thanks so much, Eric.